From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. I feel like we need to get two um, caveats out of the way here uh, at, the, at the outset. First off, if this podcast sounds a little bit different, it's because we're having to uh, resort to some uh, different methods and different techniques to make the podcast happen this week. Normally, we would be in the same room, Clark and I, sharing a microphone a couple of feet apart. Uh, I love you, man, but we, we can't do that anymore. Uh, none of us can in this day and age. So we are doing this uh, uh, remotely. Um, so the sound quality may not be what you what you come to expect. But I don't think you come to come here for the sound quality. I hope you come for content and context. And so much we need to talk about this week. Uh, another really sobering and stunning week of news that we're going to try to break down for you. And, and secondly, second caveat, we're sitting here, it's 1147 on Friday morning. Uh, the story of the coronavirus and the impacts in Idaho is changing in real time. So by the time we get this podcast up, news may overtake it and news will continue to uh, evolve and break on this story in the days to come. But we want to get you caught up with what we've seen in just a, a tumultuous week of news. Yeah, I think those are two excellent caveats uh, to keep in mind. Um, and we are doing the social distancing, like you said, and we thought that that was the safest, most responsible thing to do to help we don't want to be a part of helping spread the virus, and so this is part of an effort that we're taking. But, Kevin, let's get right into the news. The top story in Idaho and around the world uh, is the coronavirus, and that has shaped everything from the end of the legislative session uh, to the situation with schools to the health situation uh, across the state, right? And right, and, and let's jump into what we do know and what has changed since last week. Yeah, uh, on the education front, it's been dramatic. Uh, what's happened in education in the state just in the past seven days? You've seen the college and university system go online virtually overnight. Uh, that announcement came Friday afternoon, a, a week ago. Uh, Boise State has already gone online. The University of Idaho is going to follow. Other institutions are going there. And the news that came out uh, the end of this week on Thursday is uh, both Boise State and University of Idaho saying it's all going to be online for the rest of the spring semester. Uh, they're urging, BSU especially, is urging students to go home if they can, uh, stay home if they can. Uh, they're saying the kids in the dorms, students in the dorms, uh, are not going to be able to be there, that that's not a safe place to be. Uh, that they'll make accommodations for students who can't go elsewhere. Events are being canceled. Uh, programs are being canceled. The University of Idaho has already canceled spring commencement. No word from Boise State on that. That's just the higher education front. And we spent all weekend uh, from uh, Governor Little's first announcements on the coronavirus Friday through Sunday, just seeing districts large and small making decisions in in real time about whether to stay open or to close. By Sunday, Monday of this week, many of the large school districts in the state had decided to close their doors, uh, you know, extend uh, 
yeah, with spring break coming up, I think some of them decided to close early, close through spring break, do closures at least through early April. Um, we saw the West Ada School District, the largest district in the state, kind of do an about face on Sunday. At first, West Ada said they wanted to stay open, uh, heeding the recommendation that, the, that Governor Little and state health officials had, had given earlier that day. But by Sunday night, the district had received some feedback from parents and staff that uh, they decided to close. So they're closed. Many of the large districts are closed. Many small districts are closed. By our count, the majority of school districts are closed and the majority of students are home. And what you started to hear, too, is that you know some of these districts are hunkering down for this could be a long closure. But right now, they're talking about a two- or three-week closure. That's kind of the, the horizon that uh, districts have laid out. But we're hearing from district officials saying it could be a longer closure than that. Well, and I think that... And we want to be really careful about striking a balance between reporting the latest information about how it affects you and your family versus not sensationalizing the coverage. Um, But I think I've been on a lot of conference calls and, and, and tracking this, and I get the sense that whether or not it will play out, schools are preparing for the possibility of long term classes canceled. Um, schools are preparing and state leaders are preparing for the possibility of school not returning this academic year. And I say that for two reasons. I was on a State Department of Education webinar on Monday afternoon. And uh, Tim Hill, uh, the superintendent, associate superintendent for finance, talked about how the state does have a plan in place to estimate payments to school districts if classes don't resume and if the state doesn't get any more data uploads, uh, there is a plan in place for the state to estimate that. And then I saw the Mountain Home School District in Idaho, Superintendent James Gilbert posted a note on the district's website on Wednesday or Thursday of this week um, saying that that district is being prepared for and therefore parents should be prepared for the possibility of schools closing for the rest of the academic year. And I know in my old home state, Kansas, Governor Kelly issued an order to close schools for the rest of the school year. That was the first such order I had noticed across the country. Um, But I think that that's a possibility that folks should be prepared for. And I don't know exactly how it'll play out. Right, and and we should emphasize that at this hour, this is still a decision that's being made at the district level. It's been made at the district level. Uh, Governor Little has not done a statewide closure of schools. Uh, he's you know, left that decision to local districts. Uh, we saw that story unfold in real time on Sunday. Uh, as districts were starting to figure out what to do next as the, you know, the first coronavirus cases were reported in the state, uh, Governor Little did a, a webinar with school leaders. We, we both listened in to it. And he said that that decision was still going to be a local decision. And you saw it fairly quickly. You know, a lot of districts deciding to close immediately. Uh, other districts deciding to stay open for a couple of days, waive absences, excuse absences. Um, 
all of this on the heels of uh, the Idaho Education Association urging a statewide closure. So right now where we are is that this is still a local issue and still a local decision. But in a lot of districts, that decision has been made. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of changes coming down beyond that. Uh, you know, waivers now on spring testing. Uh, yeah. That's happening now at the federal level. That's going to... Uh, be available to states, and, and the state has indicated that it will seek just such a waiver. We'll be on top of that story. But, you know, while this is an education issue for us, first and foremost, and we're covering the school aspect, how schools are adjusting, how they're doing the online transition in, in, in real time, turning on a dime to an online model, it's also a public health issue. Uh, and you've spent a lot of time this week, Clark, uh, listening to Governor Little talk about this. You know, before we turn on the microphone, I think you've heard either six news conferences or briefings or town halls uh, that the governor has held on this issue. Just walk us through what he's said, what the, the message has been, maybe what the, the tone has been as you've listened to the governor talk about you know, a situation that, that just continues to unfold and, and in some ways kind of unravel. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that in each of the governor's press conferences and, and telephone town halls, I've either attended in person or, or participated virtually. And I just want to put at the beginning that without making a comment on the nature of the response and the specific response procedures, I, I think I have been pretty impressed with the openness with which Governor Little has yeah, communicated absolutely with the citizens and with the news media, but I'm not making a comment on the overall recommendations he's issuing. But so what are those recommendations? The fact that he's had four or five press conferences yeah. in the past week on, on coronavirus speaks well to the openness that, that he's, yeah. he, he's trying to be as transparent as possible about what's happening here in real time. Yeah, and, and that's really, as a reporter covering this unfolding in real time, it's almost been hard for, for me to process it. It does seem very surreal. Um, but Governor Little uh, had two press conferences Friday of last week. He had the telephone uh, meeting with school leaders on Sunday. He had a town hall on Tuesday through AARP Idaho where he took right. questions directly from Idahoans. And then he held press conferences at the State House uh, on Wednesday and Thursday that were streamed virtually. Um, and he's been joined by Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ybarra, and by State Epidemiologist, Dr. Christine Hahn, and by Idaho Department of Health and Welfare Director, Dave Jeppesen. And the governor has been somber in delivering uh, the messages. Uh, since last week, he has said Idaho's chief strategy is to help flatten the curve, yeah. is to help slow the spread of coronavirus and the reason that he wants to do that is to, and this is what the governor has emphasized, is to protect people who may be at risk from the virus, such as older adults or people with compromised immune systems. And a major concern that the governor has is spreading this out so that the state's healthcare system does not become overwhelmed um, right. with cases. And so the governor, the latest, is on Thursday he issued an isolation order or a shelter in place yeah. order for Blaine County, Idaho. That's kind of in central Idaho, uh, home to the world famous resort Sun, Blau Sun Valley and the mm -hmm. communities of Ketchum and, uh, 
and, and Haley and, and, and so forth. But there's a shelter in place order right now for Blaine County where we have seen the most confirmed cases of coronavirus. The update we got Thursday evening was that there are now 16 cases in Blaine County and that has spread uh, to infect at least two healthcare workers. Uh, across the state, I think that the latest numbers are 23 confirmed cases uh, across yeah. Idaho. Um, the governor has and not issued. Noting, Go ahead. Away from Blaine County, though. Yeah. It's worth noting on the, on the school front, Blaine County was one of the earliest districts to close their doors. Correct. The closure. They did that on Saturday. First positive case uh, that came out of Blaine County uh, was reported early Saturday afternoon within a couple of hours. Uh, the Blaine County School District announced a closure. And, and on Wednesday, even before we heard news of the uh, the community spread uh, within Blaine County, uh, the district announced that uh, they were planning to screen students for coronavirus before they could come back into school. The concern being that if, if families leave the area for spring break, uh, go out of state, um, the district wanted to get a sense of whether those students might uh, be at risk uh, of carrying the coronavirus and spreading the coronavirus within the schools. And the district pointed out that under state law, schools have the authority to exclude students from school if they are suspected of carrying a contagious disease. They do have that authority. And Blaine County was pretty, you know, pretty upfront on Wednesday saying that they would exercise that authority. I just thought we, we should make, make that mention as we're talking about Blaine County. I didn't mean to cut you off because there's so much that the governor has had to say this week that I wanted to get back to that now. No, I, I, I think that that's a good point. Blaine County um, in central Idaho at this point has been the hardest hit by the coronavirus. And uh, the sombering news from the governor late Thursday and from Idaho Department of Health and Welfare is that there is community spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. In Blaine County, they were stressing that it appears that it is not widespread community spread at this point. Um, and so when we talk about community spread, that was a really new term for me this right. week. All of this is new for me. And, but and the a term that we kind of were worried that it was going to come back out. I mean, this is one yeah. of the things that we're seeing around the world and around the country. That that concern that the virus is spread from individual to individual, and there's no, you know, there's no trace point. Somebody traveled yeah. to Blaine County and, and brought the disease. That was what. That was what was significant that had changed. The governor and health and welfare officials were stressing that prior to the spread in Blaine County, each of Idaho's confirmed cases prior to that had been due to someone who traveled out of state and contracted it in a high-risk area or from someone who contracted it um, from someone specifically who had the virus. The community spread, what was new in Blaine County, was that people were testing positive for the novel coronavirus, the COVID-19, uh, without having left the state or knowing why they were exposed to it. That, uh, that was what was new. And, and it felt, the, the announcement as it unfolded on Thursday afternoon, it was, it was sobering. I mean, you listened to the governor. I listened to uh, Senate Minority Leader Michelle Stennett, uh from Ketchum, yeah, she spoke at the uh, the Democrats' uh, end of session news conference, which I listened to remotely. She sounded shaken. You know, you know, she said, "Okay, this is a minimal spread. It's confined within Blaine County. We want to keep it that way." But you could tell that that news, 
hit hard. I mean, she was she was shaken by it. I, I suspect that you heard the same kind of tone from the governor. I mean, this is uh, this is a development in the virus that, while it's not unexpected, it's it's concerning. Yeah, it, it, it's a wake up call, but I mean, it, it means what's. Idaho's not an exception. You know, what we're seeing play out in other states and other parts of the world, it appears that that is coming to Idaho. And, and, and so it was, you know, I don't want to be naive, but it was a, a wake-up call. And, and it underscores, you know, we talked about it last week, and it feels like last week was, you know, six years ago. But, you know, we talked about it last week, you know, we are talking about it again. As you hear... You know, about school closures, event cancellations, um, you know, recommendations to avoid crowds, to uh, you know, stay inside as much as possible. This is what this is all about. I mean, this is the, this is why you're seeing these steps being taken. This is why you're hearing these warnings. The, the idea being, you know, let's try to slow the spread of this virus as much as possible, to to flatten the curve, as, as you know, health experts uh, talk about to spread out the effect of the virus, not just in, you know, in schools, but in, in the greater community. I mean, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to avoid such a, a catastrophic increase in cases and, and then serious cases that the healthcare system becomes overwhelmed. So that's why, you know, that's why all of this is happening. And I think what you saw and what you heard about in Blaine County this week, just yesterday, you know, kind of underscores and kind of drives home the point of why there's been so much talk about flattening the curve and social distancing and isolation. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that that is the state's strategy. And what does that mean? We're not talking about eliminating this thing or containing it. We're talking about trying to slow the spread to buy time and to preserve capacity at our hospitals and healthcare systems. And, and, and to buy a little bit of time to a lesser degree because we feel it feels like uh, there's a lot of catch up going on here. And, and we heard uh, Christine Hahn, Dr. Dr. Hahn, the state epidemiologist, talk about this this week catching up on testing, yeah. trying to get a better sense of who has the coronavirus and who does not. You know, the health experts talk about we need to get caught up there and that the social distancing and the isolation slows the spread some to allow uh, testing maybe to catch up a little bit uh, and, and, you know, provide more information and more detailed data about, you know, where the virus is, how, you know, how far it is spread, to what degree uh, is there community spread around the state, around the country. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And just for me, like I said, it's been really, it's been almost surreal covering it and not necessarily processing it on a personal level. But And so I've really been learning about it from obviously what I read, but from Governor Little and from the health and welfare officials and in particular the state epidemiologist. But what changed for me was last Friday's press conference on March 13th, where Governor yeah. Little declared the emergency. And when we talk about flattening the curve and overrunning the healthcare system, a reporter had asked, you know, okay, if this spreads to Idaho, what, how many people might get sick? How many people 
you know, might get infected. What are we talking about here? And so Dr. Christine Hahn, the state epidemiologist, provided a range of 15 to 35% of Idaho's population. And this was last Friday the 13th that she provided the estimate. She did the percentage. I did the math based on a state population for Idaho of about 1.75 million. At the top end of her range, if 35% of Idahoans got sick, we're talking about more than 600,000 people. And that to me was the first sobering wake-up call Obviously, that's the top of her range, um, and so hopefully that worst-case scenario doesn't play out. But to me, that was a, a, a sobering, serious wake-up call. And then, and, and, you, and I, it, 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 you're right. I mean, those numbers really were jarring when I heard them. But what's also jarring about it, and what's also maybe, um, yeah, really important to remember as we go forward as a as a state and as a as a citizenry, 15 to 35%, that's a gap of 20 percentage points in human terms. That is about 350,000 people. That's a big difference between yeah. 350,000 Idahoans contracting this virus. So when people talk about you know, avoiding the spread of this disease and social distancing and isolation, if the, the spread that they're talking about is, is that why that's what we're talking about. If you want to try to get to 15%, which is still very serious as opposed to 35%, you think about that in human terms, you can really get a sense of why that is so vitally important at this point. Yeah. And I mean, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but the rural nature of Idaho, we do not have 300,000 hospital beds. We do not have 300,000 ventilators or intensive care units. And so that's the governor's concern, right? Right, right. You know, to try to mitigate the, the numbers as much as possible, but also spread out the number of cases so that hospitals will be able to, you know, treat people, get them better, uh, get them home. Yeah. And, and create space for the, the, unfortunately, for the next people who, who you know, may need hospital care. Yeah. Um, we're almost 23 minutes in, Kevin, and I haven't even mentioned what would have been the top story any other week. Uh, but finally, uh, the legislature adjourned, uh, right? Uh, the right. legislature adjourned. Yes. The Senate adjourned for the year Thursday evening, and the House, uh, for reasons I don't understand, came back Friday morning uh, and adjourned early this morning after 75 days. But you wrote a really Interest, you wrote a couple. You wrote two really interesting pieces at the homepage at IdahoEdNews.org that I would cons, uh, that I would urge everyone to read. Uh, your wrap-up piece about the tumultuous session coming to an end, and what happened um, in regards to education issues. Education was a big part of this session, but even more important, I thought, was your step-back piece on Thursday, talking about how the scene at the Idaho State House went from surreal to scary um, yeah. amid the coronavirus pandemic. Do you want to talk a little bit about the approach you took on that story and, and how you reported it? And then I want to get into some of the legislators who left town early in, in their decision. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that some more because, um, you know, I think the end of the session as far as education issues are, are concerned, I, I did uh, my best to try to summarize the highlights of that in the story on Thursday. It, 
you know, it's important stuff for education. It's important education policy. Any other time we would we would do a deep dive into the policy, but you've heard us talk about a lot of these policies and you can get caught up there. But it really felt like the, the final few days of the legislative session, everything was overtaken by the news of the pandemic. And, you know, you and I, you know, we've covered, this was our seventh legislative session together. And, you know, by far the most trying uh, days covering the legislature these past couple of weeks. Um, you know, I think for me, the moment was that really struck me about being there um, was a week ago Wednesday. I was in the Senate State Affairs Committee uh, packed room because uh, they were hearing testimony on a bill that would have allowed uh, school employees to carry uh, firearms on school grounds. The room was packed and we were you know, elbow to elbow in, in the room at the same time that the World Health Organization was formally declaring the coronavirus a global pandemic. And that really shook me. Uh, that really, you know, I worked from home the following day. I did go back on Friday. Uh, briefly, I tried to social distance uh, in a committee room as much as possible. Thankfully, um, the Senate State Affairs met in the largest committee room available uh, for the second hearing on the guns and schools bill. So I was able to maintain a pretty good radius uh, between myself and other people in the room, but still, you know, fairly large uh, group of uh, folks in the, uh, in the committee room. And that was just last week, Clark. I mean, that was, you know, and again, last week feels like six years ago. Yeah. As we, as we saw things unfold last weekend, you know, in stuff we've already talked about, you know, the university system going online overnight, uh, the large districts, so many large districts and small districts deciding to close their doors, and the CDC coming out with new guidelines uh, urging us all to avoid gatherings of 50 or more people. I started thinking about it on, on, on Sunday, heading into Monday, and I put on a suit to get ready to go to the state house, thinking, well, just in case, if I have to go in the building, I'll be ready. But my mind had been made up that I was not going to go back in that building for the rest of the session. And, you know, that's how I covered the final week. I, I know that's how you covered the final few days of the session. And, you know, first off, shout out to Idaho Public Television and the service that they provide. The streaming service allows all of us to watch floor sessions and committee meetings wherever we are. You know, that's a valuable thing, even when we're in the building, because you can track what's going on in, in multiple rooms. Well, let's but let's let's pause. The only way I can cover this. Let's pause right there. The Idaho House nearly voted down the the budget for Idaho Public Television a few weeks yes, ago. Uh, but Idaho Public Television, through its Idaho in session service, is providing a fantastic public service that is making the legislature and Governor Little's press conferences available to the public. And so we have a lot of friends at Idaho Public Television. Uh, we're both friends of the um, uh, of, of, of their hosts and their employees. And uh, but but I've been my last day in person at the State House was Monday. I left Monday at noon. And so the rest of this week, uh, I covered it from a distance 100% remotely relying on Idaho Public Television. Um, and what a fantastic public service. But I, I just wanted to pause right there and point that out. Yeah. You know, so 
I tried to capture some of that in the story that I did on Wednesday, the, the analysis piece. Um, you know, and it's hard to be completely objective about this when, when it's about our health and the health of those around us, uh, the health of those closest to us, and community health. You know, you can't be objective. You can't be completely detached from the story when it is that personal and it's, it's that impactful. Um, you know, it, it was so, it, you know, it was so bizarre to watch this session unfold, even watching it from afar, even just two blocks away. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm in our, my office here at uh, Idaho Education News, which puts me about two blocks away from the state capitol. Um, we have individual workspace, so it's very easy for us to socially distance ourselves from our coworkers here, and we're a small group anyway. Um, but it was it was very strange to watch it via laptop two blocks away and realize that there were large groups of people still gathering and still meeting. I mean, you know, you do the math. <laughs> yeah, there are seventy members of the House of Representatives, and granted, the House Chambers it's a it's a big, majestic meeting space, but still seventy people plus staff plus reporters. Uh, plus folks watching from the gallery, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's well in excess of what the CDC guidelines were. It's well in excess of what President Trump said earlier in the week. He was talking about you should avoid crowds of more than 10 people. And yet still you had the House with 70 members meeting, you had the Senate with 35 members, but you also had several members of the legislature consciously and publicly announced the They've had enough that they felt like this was too dangerous, that this was too contradictory to uh, public health warnings that they decided to leave early. At least seven Democratic legislators left before the end of the session. There were actually 10 House members absent at the very end on Friday, but seven Democrats took off at least seven between Wednesday and Thursday. Mm -hmm. And Senator... David Nelson, a Democrat out of Moscow, sounded the alarm bell when he left town. And if, if you'll give me just about 30 seconds, I just want to read the statement that Senator Nelson sent out uh, as he left town. And so here's the statement, quote, I am greatly concerned about the blatant disregard for all recommended safety precautions that the CDC, the White House, and governments around the U.S. and the rest of the world have issued to slow the spread of the virus. Other areas around the nation are going into mandatory lockdown and social distancing is the recommendation of all healthcare providers. We are putting the lives of people in this building at risk. The longer we stay, the more likely it is that we will also chance carrying the virus home with us when the session does finally wrap up, end quote. The decision that he made and, and several legislators made, and and you know, I should note that the Democrats who left were more vocal about their reasons for leaving. I mean, you mentioned uh, you know, Senator Nelson, uh, Senator Marianne Jordan, who's retiring, a Democrat from Boise. She was very public about saying, I think the best thing for me to do for my constituents is to stay home and to uh, do my best to flatten the curve. Representative Steve Birch, a, a Democrat from Boise, he went on his Facebook page and said, I have a family member who has uh, you know, immune deficiencies, and he was concerned about 
contracting the virus and perhaps spreading it to that family member. I mean, that's a very, very personal decision that he made. And yeah, I should note that, you know, while the Democrats were more public about it, uh, you had a couple of Republicans, at least one Republican who left, uh, Gary Collins. Gary Collins. Uh, you know, this was discussed on the House, was spoken to representatives. So I don't want to speak too much uh, to his situation, but House Speaker Scott Bedke talked about Collins' absence on the House floor Thursday afternoon and, and mentioned that there was a health concern, uh, that uh, it sounded like he was concerned about being on, on the House floor. No, you know, he was not as public and as vocally critical of the decision to stay in session. Um, but you did. You had several legislators uh, kind of making that decision. And, you know, it's a, you know, as I watched the session, as I watched the final few days of the session uh, from afar, I couldn't help but think what was the urgent issue that needed to be resolved in these final few days. And that is not a, that's not an editorial comment on any of the legislation that was passed, but it felt like the debates that we were hearing and the procedural logjam that we saw unfold. Let's talk about the higher education budget, because that was one of the major sticking points to getting out of this session. You, you and I both listened to some of the House floor debates, the three versions of this higher education budget that uh, had to be written, uh, two voted down on the House floor, one finally passed on the House floor on Tuesday afternoon. The difference in dollars between version one of that higher ed budget, version two of that higher ed budget, and version three, the one that passed, we're talking about a million dollars worth of difference from version one to version three. Yeah. How does a budget between state general funds and, and dedicated funds of more than $600 million? You know, I know that there are members of the House who want to make a social statement about the university system, the college system, uh, concerns about diversity programs, inclusion programs. We've heard those concerns for months. We knew we'd hear those concerns again on the House floor. But at the end of the day, um, the difference between what was voted down and what passed, you know, really in terms of dollars, is not that big a difference. And you know, I couldn't help notice that after it, uh, after the higher budget finally did pass the House, and again after some fairly heated debate on the House floor, uh, you know, watching the vote, wondering if this one was going to fail like the previous two versions of the higher budget. By the time that bill got over to the Senate. No debate passed unanimously. Uh, you know, a Senate that I think to a large degree in a lot of ways uh, looked a little bit more like a chamber that was ready to go home. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that's because of coronavirus or just fatigue or just, hey, I think we've done our work here for the year. Let's just get it done and get it get out of here. But the Senate seemed ready to uh, to adjourn uh, kind of quietly and, you know, you know, quickly adjourned on Thursday night. But as you mentioned, the House adjourned Friday morning. Um, kind of bizarre that they came back in in the first place because they didn't really do anything except vote to adjourn and narrowly voted to adjourn. I mean, it was a couple of votes either way. They could still be in session. I think it, I think the motion to adjourn passed something like 32-28. I think if yeah. two members had switched their vote, it would have failed on a tie vote and they could still be there. But that higher ed budget, just real quickly, we covered it in the story. And I want to go back to sticking around uh, during the coronavirus before we sign off. But the higher ed budget, one last thing I wanted to say, and we wrote about this, but it really came back to that anti-diversity letter that Representative yeah. Barbara Ehart and the 27 other House Republicans signed 
in July of 2019 that they sent to, uh, at that point, brand new Boise State President Dr. Marlene Trump, pushing back against diversity programs at Boise State University in particular. That came up each of the three higher education budget debates. And in particular, the second time they killed the higher education budget, Representative Brent Crane, a Republican from Nampa, uh, who used to be in House leadership, no longer is, turned his debate directly towards Dr. Marlene Trump from Boise State University and said that it was a direct affront to him personally as a legislator that after he signed the diversity letter um, that, that she went out and Boise State University hired a vice president for diversity. Uh, so that was where a lot of this opposition was coming from. And then between the three votes, really bizarre stuff. Representative Heather Scott talked about the thickness and the glossiness of the mailers that universities yes. send out. And she said that was evidence that they need to cut their budget. But stuff that just didn't make sense at all. Uh, but the diversity letter was front and center. And legislators made no effort to hide that. And Representative Crane, in particular directed that debate squarely at Boise State President Marlene Trump and said that he was offended personally that Boise State went out and hired a diversity director. So that's what we're looking at. That's why the House, partially, that was one of the things the House was doing when it stuck around. Um, and, and what it, go ahead. And, and what it did overshadow in the final few days of the session, we had you know a debate over... A fairly small amount of money. I mean, let's you know again, again, focus on the money here and the amount of money in this higher education budget that was actually in play. Uh, that discussion, I think, really overshadowed and, and took some of the attention away from what I also was sensing was the start of a a bigger discussion about bigger issues that are going to face the state here going forward. I, I think as legislators as some legislators started to see what's happening in the stock market what's happening in the uh, you know in, in the economy what's happening in the business sector the retail sector the uh, restaurant and entertainment sectors uh starting to realize that we are heading towards a very very dicey uh, time economically which could have far-reaching ramifications on the state budget on the ability to continue to fund uh, some of the commitments that were made to K-12, namely the, the five-year, $223 million plan to raise teacher salaries, how this economy might affect the demand on higher education. Because, you know, you can talk about glossy mailers, you can talk about, uh, you, know, you know, rainbow graduation, uh, all, all you want, as some of the conservatives in the House have done for several months. What we know about higher education, not just in Idaho, but what we know about higher education is that when the economy turns bad and, and you know, every indication is that the, the economy is heading towards a, a, a pretty steep downturn here, higher education enrollment increases. People go back to school. They want to finish their degree or get their certificate. And they decide, look, it's time to scrape together some student loans or scrape together some scholarship money, get some training, get ready for getting back into the workforce when the economy does rebound. So, if we're looking at a, a tight economy next year, if we're, if we're in the midst of a downturn heading into the summer, the fall, next legislative session, 
you're going to see increases in enrollment at the higher education institutions. You're going to see an increased demand for higher education. That's just economic reality that we've seen play out over and over. You started to see some legislators talking about, we don't know where this is going. We don't know what this is going to look like down the road. Uh, one of the last things the legislature passed this, this year, and it didn't get nearly as much attention relative to all the higher education budget debates, uh, passed a bill that allows the uh, state's board of examiners, uh, a group of elected officials, including the governor, to dip into reserves if needed to balance the books on June 30th if the state does not have enough money to balance the books. And there are a lot of concerns about what's going to happen with sales tax revenue the final three months, uh, whether people are going to uh, seek extensions on you know, paying the balance of their income tax because you can now get an extension at the federal level. All sorts of potential concerns about the revenue stream for the final three months of this budget year. That was starting to get some attention. That was starting to uh, shape the, uh, the dialogue around the state house, uh, but probably not nearly as much as a lot of the procedural stuff that was going on on the house floor, particularly that seemed to slow the session down uh, and, and drag it out even until Friday morning. Yeah. I, um, I know we're running long, but I want to talk just a little bit more about the session continuing amid the coronavirus pandemic. And then that will be the way I start to wrap this up. And then I'll hand sure. it over to you for Kevin for final thoughts. Again, I'm sorry. I know this doesn't sound very good today. We're going to try to keep doing the extra credit podcast and I'll try to keep um, improving mic placement to make it sound a little bit better. I know it sounds terrible today and I'm sorry. Um, but I want to point out and what you said about as a journalist, it's hard. And I want to keep in mind um, about trying to be objective. Uh, but I've also been encouraged by my editor to hold public officials accountable for their actions. And so um, here's where I'm going with this next little bit. And I might be going right up to the line or even right over it. But I want every Idahoan to know um, this, these two things that I'm about to say about the session continuing to go. Um, on Tuesday, I want to say it was, uh, the Idaho House put out yeah. a press release, House Republicans put out a press release saying that they were taking very serious coronavirus precautions, including avoiding uh, large groups, avoiding crowded rooms, and washing their hands. That came out like 4 o'clock or so on Tuesday afternoon. Mm -hmm. Within an yeah, hour, about right. within an hour, Representative Dorothy Moon, a Stanley Republican, stood up on the House floor and invited all of her colleagues to go to a party that night to celebrate the end of the session at the Basque Center in downtown Boise. This was after the guidance from the president uh, to avoid groups of 10 or more. The second thing, on Thursday, the House voted down a, a motion from Representative John Gannon, a Boise Democrat, to adjourn due to emergency. The House voted that down and kept going. And I keep thinking back to Senator Nelson's quote about these legislators returning back uh, to their small hometown districts, but um, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, there haven't been any legislators who have tested positive or even been tested that I know of at this point, 
but I wanted every yeah, Idahoan to know. Scott you talked about how none of them are showing symptoms yeah. at the end of the session. He said that Thursday night in the session news conference. Sorry. But I wanted every Idahoan to know that within an hour of the Idaho House sending out a press release saying they were taking these precautions and avoiding large groups, within the hour they had organized uh, an end-of-session party. But to me, I'm not trying to scare people. Uh, I want to hold policymakers accountable uh, for their decisions. But to me, this is, this is heartbreaking. Uh, it's affecting my family. My brother uh, works in the service industry in Washington State. Uh, he lost his job. Uh, this week, and he doesn't know what's going to happen yeah. next. On Thursday night, late last night, I got an email from an Idaho woman who I don't know who said that her husband, because of a stupid decision he made, is in prison right now, and she's scared, and they have three young children at home, and she asked if I could check on that situation. And, and this is heartbreaking, uh, to me and it's affecting me and I know it's affecting your families and I'm not trying to scare people I'm trying to share the best information that I have knowing that so much of it is uncertain but it's heartbreaking to me and it's affecting my family and I know it's affecting your family and I know these are uncertain times and we may be in the very early days of this and I don't know where it's going but we think it's important to share the information that we can in a way that's responsible and it's something that I struggle with and it's been hard for me to process and I think to a certain extent this is unprecedented but um, I just wanted to acknowledge some of my feelings and, and I know the podcast doesn't sound great today and I know we're we're going long but I wanted to share that and Kevin I'll, I'll turn it over to you for a couple of final thoughts and then um, we can kind of sign off if you want well yeah yeah so I want to I want to quick debunk something that some people might be thinking that, you know, it's reporters who are making a big deal out of the legislature staying in session for the final week. And it's reporters doing this because we don't like legislators or whatever. Um, I want to read a tweet and I'm going to read the tweet first and then I'll tell you who tweeted it because this one really struck me. Um, you know, I, I will say that, you know, the person who wrote this tweet and I, we've, uh, We've crossed swords on Twitter uh, once or twice, but uh, this one uh, uh, this one really struck. It was a response to uh, a story about the continuing legislative session. I'm going to read it. Quote, as a father, physician, and member of this community, I find it completely reckless and the worst display of leadership that I've ever seen in my lifetime to still be in session. What happened to lead by example? Unbelievable. The guy who wrote that tweet is Tommy Alquist. You remember the name, Tommy Alquist ran for governor in 2018. He's As a Republican. He's also a physician. Um, I do not pretend to understand infectious diseases. I will defer to somebody like Tommy Alquist, who has made a living dealing with disease and public health. That's not Kevin Richard bashing on the Idaho legislature. It's not Clark Corbin bashing on the Idaho legislature for staying in session. That's a physician. Um, that should tell you something about what we saw unfold at this uh, state house these, these past few days. I think that that's as good of a, a final word as, as any. Thank you, Kevin, for sharing that. Take care of yourself and take care of your family. And I hope all of our listeners can stay safe. Um, we're going to try to be back again next week yeah. with another edition of Extra Credit. I'll try to experiment with some microphone placement. Um, 
I don't know any more than a lot of people listening at home and I'm just I'm just trying to be thankful for what I do have and how fortunate I am uh, but it's uncertain yeah. times and it's hard yeah. to process but uh, I guess on some small level even recording this podcast today was slightly therapeutic and it helped me process my thoughts and emotions in a way that I hadn't really done I haven't really had a day off um, I had a little bit of time off last Saturday, yeah. but I worked like 14 hours Sunday and I know you've been doing the same. And so I haven't really processed my own emotions. Um, and so for whatever that was worth, that was a little bit therapeutic today, but thanks so much for listening. Uh, we're trying to do the best we can knowing that we know very little uh, about this, um, but we know that it's affecting your families and it's affecting our families too. Thanks for continuing to listen to us and, and placing your your trust in us, uh, you know, it means a lot. I'm I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Uh, stay safe and be smart out there for for yourself and for those closest to you. All right. Have a good week. Thanks so much.